Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. I'm going to start by talking about taking a photograph, which I'm sure we've all done a million times. And I'm going to look at the act of taking a photograph in four parts. And the first part is opening your eyes to what is present. In other words, when we want to photograph something, Usually that's triggered by seeing something that for one reason or another we find beautiful, fascinating, curious, weird. Or maybe it's just for a record of something that we, we, we want to have a good memory of. The next step in taking a photograph, and here I'm moving more into photography as an art, is that we need to let go of our habitual views and perceptions. Now, I notice very often when I'm, let's say, on the beach and there's a gorgeous sunset and that almost invariably triggers people to get out their cameras and try to photograph the sunset. Or if you go to a famous cathedral in Europe, let's say Notre Dame, It'll be in front of it, you'll find loads of people with very expensive equipment photographing Notre Dame. But in many cases, what will result from that photograph will be uh, a cliche. Another sunset, another picture of Notre Dame. Frankly, it would be far more um, effective to buy a postcard. Uh, <laughs> The photograph that you're going to take, and sometimes I notice people have equipment worth thousands of dollars, is they'll take a snapshot and you might just as well have paid 50 cents for a much better image uh, at the 
uh, store of the cathedral or wherever it might, uh, might be. So when we're taking photographs um, as a practice of art, we try to somehow let go of all the cliches, all the um, derivative images that clutter our minds, all the beautiful images we've ever seen of sunsets. We put that away and we try to open ourselves totally to what is unique and distinctive in that moment in such a way that we let go, we um, detach ourselves from our preconceived ideas, our concepts, our, our ideas and whatnot. And at a certain point, we press the shutter. That's the third step. It's what Henri Cartier-Bresson, who's probably one of the great photographers of the 20th century, calls the decisive moment. And the fourth step is that we bring into being, through that decisive moment, an unanticipated image that reveals the world in a new light. A great photograph by, say, Cartier-Bresson is not just a record of a place or a sunset, but it enables the viewer to see that place, that object, in a new way, in a new line. I've been practicing photography since I was about 15 or 16 years old. And what I strive for is to be able to be open to the world in a way that's not clouded by preconceived ideas, in a way in which I'm not trying to derivatively produce an image that I admire from someone else's work, but to be able to tune myself to that moment and press the shutter, and in doing so, release into the world a photograph in which that thing is seen in a new way. This is a quotation from Cartier-Bresson himself. To take photographs, he said, is to hold one's breath when all faculties converge in the face of fleeing reality. It is putting one's head, one's eyes, and one's heart on the same axis. It is a way of freeing oneself, not of proving or asserting one's originality. It is a way of life. It's interesting that Cartier-Bresson, um, particularly towards the end of his life, was a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. Um, and the last photographs he took before he died were actually a series of images of young Tibetan tulkus. Uh, he lived in France. He was very close with uh, the family of Mathieu Ricard and others. I saw him once from a distance at a gathering with the Dalai Lama, but I was too nervous to introduce myself. In, he was my great hero, really. And for Cartier-Bresson, uh, the camera wasn't just... Um, a technical device whereby we can record images. He defined the camera as an instrument of intuition and spontaneity. And I think this has quite a lot to say about technology. 
Um, we don't tend to think of a camera as an instrument of intuition and spontaneity. Uh, it's a, a piece of machinery, but in the hands of uh, an artist, it allows us to uh, transform our image, our understanding of the world, and reveal it anew. In other words, the imagination and creativity come very much into play. Obviously, to become a photographer, you need to acquire um, a certain discipline. You require a great deal of technical skill. And in the same way, if you, for example, were a painter or a writer or a pianist, you have to spend a lot of time doing a lot of boring stuff in order that you can use the technology and you're no longer conscious of the technology. It becomes an instrument um, that's almost, as uh, the lady was saying last night, uh, a part of your own body. But the thing is, simply to have the technical skill does not guarantee that um, your photograph will produce, or your photography, I'm sorry, will produce a work of great art. And to me, this is similar with the practice of meditation. One might have achieved considerable technical skill in certain meditative disciplines, but simply to have achieved those skills is not a guarantee that your practice will give rise to great wisdom uh, or to great love. And in some ways, I find it interesting that the aspects of meditation that we um, consider more from, let's say, a scientific or neuroscientific point of view tend to be those elements of meditation that we can learn. Mindfulness, concentration in particular, these are, as it were, technical skills. Uh, we've mentioned the word and inner technologies quite a lot during these last few days. And of course, there are um, ways described in considerable detail that enable us to become proficient in certain meditative skills and technologies. But I find it very difficult to imagine how simply mastering those skills will in any way be a guarantee of becoming more wise, becoming more loving, becoming more compassionate, becoming more engaged with the suffering of other people. It seems that these qualities are in some sense uh, meta-technical. Whether it's photography or whether it's meditation, um, we need to go beyond mere expertise uh, in these domains. We require a capacity to see the world in another way. And the pursuit of meditation and photography has led me away from fascination with the extraordinary. The, there were times, particularly when I was a young monk, when I saw the the goal of meditation is arriving at deep, uh, non-conceptual, mystical insights into the nature of reality. Much in the same way that when taking photographs, I thought that what I was looking for in the world was some 
piece of scenery or some object that had in itself a kind of intrinsic fascination or interest, something very, very special. But in many ways, I found over time that my interest in uh, both meditation and photography has brought me back to a heightened understanding, uh, a fascination, a curiosity with the concrete, sensuous events of daily life. I'm not interested anymore in uh, gaining some transcendent experience, but rather I'm far more interested in learning to be more fully attentive to what is happening in this moment right now. So the practice of photography over the years taught me to start paying much closer attention to what I see around me all the time. And I found that many of the photographs that I'm most uh, happy with are those that are actually just taken of, uh, their images taken of things that I see every day, but which I don't notice. Um, we tend to overlook what's going on around us. Um, we tend to take so much for granted. Um, we don't actually see what's right before our eyes. And this sensibility is exactly the same that I found through my practice of awareness meditation, of mindfulness. It's not about arriving at some non-ordinary uh, state of consciousness or some special absolute truth or something, but rather to learn to be more fully present uh, to what is actually occurring here and now. So rather than a technique, I would understand meditation more as a sensibility, and a sensibility that originates and culminates in the everyday sublime. The everyday sublime. The sublime is a term much used in the Romantic tradition, and it has to do with those experiences of life which are both fascinating and in some sense terrifying. And I think a great deal of our lives are spent somehow protecting ourselves against the sublime. And I feel that meditation, awareness practices in particular, are practices in which we learn to divest ourselves of those habits of mind, those preconceptions, those fixed views, opinions, etc., etc., that actually obscure or somehow numb us or as Robert said this morning, anesthetize ourselves to the utterly extraordinary experience that we're having right now. I also work as a translator and a writer. And my career as a writer really began with my work in translating Tibetan texts. As soon as one gets involved in the practice of translation, one is obliged 
to engage the imagination. The tradition can, can help us a great deal in understanding what a particular term means, but it can't actually provide us with any help at all in finding uh, the most appropriate English word uh, to convey that idea. So to translate is unavoidably a process of interpretation, a process of what we were talking about this morning of innovation. We are having to um, take from one place, let's say a Tibetan text, into another place, a translation of that text into English, and the vehicle in which that translation occurs is that of the imagination. Translation literally means to carry something over from one place to another. As a translator, I've moved away from translating uh, classical texts, although that is still something I'm, I'm very much involved in, but I don't see it as my, my primary work anymore, to translating ideas. And so much of what we've been talking about over the last days is basically how do we translate a particular doctrine, a particular practice, a particular uh, element of Buddhist culture in the East, how do we translate that into a form of words, a form of images, uh, into some form of medium um, in which we successfully take it from a culture that was not our own, ancient Tibet or Japan or wherever, into the culture of our own time. Now, I feel that in many ways, it's not a question, therefore, of whether or not we should interpret classical teachings, but it's a question of how we should interpret classical teachings. We don't have a choice. As soon as we hear a teaching, we are in a way called upon to integrate and to bring that teaching into relevance for our own life in the 21st century. And that entails an act of the imagination. Now, very often the traditional uh, teachers and doctrines and so forth can give us a great deal of support in finding uh, our own uh, voice in this way. But at a certain point, um, I feel that they can get in the way. In other words, there's a sort of uh, taboo against uh, taking this too far. And I feel this is a tension that is perhaps unavoidable at our present time. Buddhism has not yet found a form that is distinctively modern. We are in the process of um, moving from one Asian culture into modernity. And each of us is engaged in this process of translation. Buddhism, as I understand it, has survived through the ages, not because it has preserved something unchanging 
and uncorrupted. And that, I think, is often the myth of uh, traditional thought, is that somehow we've preserved something without any adaptation or change from what was uttered two and a half thousand years ago by the Buddha. And many of the traditions have developed polemics and rhetorics to somehow argue that what you're hearing now is exactly what the Buddha taught in 500 BC. And historical study um, or analysis of these lineages and traditions shows quite quickly that an enormous amount of transformation and change has gone on. And that we begin to understand when we look at the history of the Buddhist tradition that it has been a constant process of reimagining the Dhamma. So Buddhism has survived, not because it's preserved something unchanging, but because it has succeeded on many different occasions, when it went to China, Tibet, Japan, in imagining itself differently. Traditional schools are rather uncomfortable about acknowledging that. But for us in the West, historical consciousness is inescapable. We cannot but see Buddhism, as, as David Loy was mentioning this morning, as also characterized by the very features that it describes all other things as impermanent, as dukkha. Buddhism is, in a sense, imperfect, unsatisfactory, and at the same time, Buddhism is insubstantial. There is no essential Buddhism. There is no essence to Buddhism. And that can sometimes feel uncomfortable. In that regard, or in this regard, it seems to me that Buddhism is perhaps better compared to a living organism that over time evolves and adapts to new environments. And in that sense, just in the same way that you would find it very difficult to define what is the essence of an elephant, what is the essence of a butterfly. In the same way, I don't think we can talk about the essence of Buddhism. It is a non-essentialist tradition. It's concerned with living processes that are continuously changing, evolving, and adapting, and cannot be reduced to a particular uh, state or a particular final definition of what it really is. And perhaps the best way in which this is illustrated traditionally is in the Buddha's parable of the elephant and the blind man. Uh, an elephant is brought into um, a place in the town, uh, the order of the king, and the king then invites the blind people of the town to um, come and tell him what this thing is. And so the person who touches the side of the elephant says, it's a wall. The person who touches the trunk says, it's a trumpet. I'm sure you all know this story. Um, but none of them are able to capture the totality of the elephant in its organic complexity. And Buddhism, I think, is like the elephant. Um, we become attached to little bits of it, and we think, well, that's what it really is. But we fail thereby to capture 
the Dharma as a complex living organism that cannot be reduced to any one of its particular bits. Now, in this regard, um, when we bring into the equation the work of the imagination, and this happens at every period when the Dharma encounters another culture, um, and perhaps another political, economic, or other system, is that inevitably we have to imagine it otherwise. But the problem with the imagination is that it can be perceived as subversive. And in traditional religious institutions, not just Buddhism, but pretty much everywhere, the imagination tends to be controlled by those in power. In other words, those who have authority within the tradition, they are the ones who dictate what it is that Buddhism really is, what dogmas and beliefs are to be upheld, what forms um, of iconography, for example, can be um, regarded as legitimate. Um, and that constitutes a considerable part of the power and the authority of the orthodoxy or the church or the institution. The notion that one might creatively imagine the Dharma in another way is um, not even something that we can even find a language for in classical Buddhist languages. There's a term in Tibetan, for example, called rangzoa. Rangzoa means made by oneself. And that is always considered to be a term of um, abuse. The last thing that uh, the tradition wants is for you to somehow make up your own version of what it means. This is all about the need, often for very good motives, very good reasons perhaps, to conserve and to preserve the Dhamma. But I think the whole notion of preservation is deeply problematic. As I remember a conversation I had with Ken McLeod many years ago, where he said, the only things that we preserve are things that are already dead. You know, apples or jam or uh, confit de, de, de canard or whatever it might be. What we preserve is already dead. Preservation is, I think, a non-living relationship to the tradition. Whereas imagining the Dharma um, otherwise is, I think, the lifeblood, the pulse of a living tradition. So often the imagination is something that is um, uh, permitted amongst those in authority. In other words, the, the abbot of the monastery can have a dream or a great uh, lama might produce a very original piece of art. But if your ordinary, unenlightened uh, follower exhibits any such tendencies to be imaginative or creative, they tend either to be ignored or dismissed. Um, or they're told, very often as I'm told, that you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> so the imagination, and I think this is very true at our times, is often felt to be threatening, that it's... Um, 
challenges the authority and the power of those in charge. Now, obviously, we can see through the history of Buddhism that the Buddhist cultures have produced an extraordinary richness and variety of um, painting, of sculpture, of architecture, and so forth and so on. But what is striking, I find, is that with a few exceptions in Japan, um, Buddhists have not actually uh, thought about the process of creativity or imagination itself. And in fact, in most classical Buddhist languages, we don't even have a word for it. Creativity, imagination. There's no, or not yet, um, evolved a Buddhist aesthetics. In other words, a, a way of thinking about what constitutes the beautiful, what constitutes the sublime. And that, I wonder, may be a, um, a challenge that perhaps we can meet in modernity, is to arrive at a, a way of thinking about uh, aesthetics from a Buddhist uh, perspective. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.